Blog Talk Radio. and the sobering 73 total deaths. We've also seen in the count the death of an individual from the Statesville Correctional Center. There are 12 men who were incarcerated at Statesville who are now hospitalized, several requiring ICU and ventilator support. There are 77 additional individuals who have symptoms who are being isolated within the facility. We also know of 11 staff who have symptoms and are being appropriately isolated. Congregate settings, such as Stateville, any other correctional center, 
pose unique challenges in stopping the spread of disease and protecting the health of individuals who live and work there. Those who are incarcerated obviously live and work and eat and study and recreate all within that same environment, heightening the potential for COVID-19 to spread really quickly once it's introduced. The options for isolation of COVID-19 cases are limited in this focused uh, setting and it becomes very difficult depending on the size of the facility and the population that's already in the facility. Ideally, all cases should be isolated individually and close contact should be quarantined individually. I know our partners at the Department of Corrections are working innovatively to try to create the best situations for these, for these facilities. But some correctional facilities and detention centers do not have enough individual cells. And so we are considering isolating multiple laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 cases together as a group or quarantining close contacts of a particular case together as a group. Additionally, incarcerated individuals may have medical conditions that further increase their risk of disease from the COVID-19. We do know that Statesville has an older population of incarcerated individuals, so they are at greater risk of experiencing severe illness. Our focus right now is ensuring that these incarcerated individuals receive the appropriate medical care that they deserve and need. Public health officials are working with the medical staff and physicians who work in the correctional facilities on isolation and quarantine guidance, as well as healthcare triage. Incarcerated individuals who show symptoms are being tested for COVID-19. The Illinois Department of Corrections is taking a number of steps to control the spread of COVID-19 in its correctional centers. Staff who work with the individuals in isolation and quarantine, as well as in the health center, are wearing protective equipment. Staff are also having their temperature checked daily as they present to work each shift. Correctional centers with a confirmed case are placed on lockdown, which means that there will be no movement around the facility except for medical care. Other congregate type settings are also experiencing clusters of cases. Of course, nursing homes, which we have talked about numerous times, assisted livings, and other long-term care facilities across the state, including those in Evanston, Joliet, Taylorville, and Belleville, have all seen clusters of cases. Public health officials continue to provide guidance and assistance on infection control practices, resident monitoring, isolation, and quarantine. While our response to the coronavirus pandemic has been aggressive and robust, we must all continue to do what science has told us works. Social distancing, washing our hands, staying home, Please continue to stay home as much as possible. We have to all do our part to end this, this pandemic. And now I will summarize comments in Spanish. Creo firme en la gente. Si compartes la verdad, puedes depender en ellos para enfrentar cualquier crisis nacional. El gran punto es traerles los hechos reales. No sé exactamente si que fue Abraham Lincoln o General MacArthur que han dicho esas palabras, pero sin embargo el mensaje es el mismo. El propósito de nuestras sesiones diarias es compartir los hechos reales para que todos podamos responder a esta crisis. La verdad es que el número de casos seguirá creciendo al igual que las muertes. Hoy estoy reportando 406 nuevos casos y 7 muertes adicionales. Ahora hay más de 5,050 casos en Illinois, incluyendo 72 muertes. No tenemos el, el número real de todos los casos aquí en Illinois, porque no hagan...
I wanted was a much-deserved promotion. And he told me to get up on the desk and spread them. All the men in my office wrote down on a piece of paper the sexual favors that I could do for them. All I had asked for was an office with a window. I asked for his advice about how I could get a bill out of committee. He asked me if I brought my knee pads. Those are just a few of the horrific stories that I heard from women over the last year as I've been investigating workplace sexual harassment. And what I've found out is that it's an epidemic across the world. It's a horrifying reality for millions of women when all they want to do every day is go to work. Sexual harassment doesn't discriminate. You can wear a skirt, hospital scrubs, army fatigues. You can be young or old, married or single, black or white. You can be a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I heard from so many women, police officers, members of our military, financial assistants, actors, engineers, lawyers, bankers, accountants, teachers, journalists. Sexual harassment, it turns out, is not about sex. It's about power and about what somebody does to you to try and take away your power. And I'm here today to encourage you to know that you can take that power back. On July 6, 2016, I jumped off a cliff all by myself. It was the scariest moment of my life, an excruciating choice to make. I fell into an abyss all alone, not knowing what would be below. But then something miraculous started to happen. Thousands of women started reaching out to me to share their own stories of pain and agony and shame. They told me that I became their voice. They were voiceless. And suddenly I realized that even in the 21st century, every woman still has a story. Like Joyce, a flight attendant supervisor whose boss in meetings every day would tell her about the porn that he'd watched the night before while drawing penises on his notepad. She went to complain. She was called crazy and fired. Like Joanne, Wall Street banker, her male colleagues would call her that vile C-word every day. She complained, labeled a troublemaker, never to do another Wall Street deal again. Like Elizabeth, an army officer, her male subordinates would wave $1 bills in her face and say, dance for me. And when she went to complain to a major, he said, what, only $1? You're worth at least five or 10. After reading, replying to all, and crying over all of these emails, I realized I had so much work to do. Here are the startling facts. One in three women that we know of have been sexually harassed in the workplace. 71% of those incidences never get reported. Why? Because when women come forward, they're still called liars and troublemakers and demeaned and trashed and demoted and blacklisted and fired. Reporting sexual harassment can be, in many cases, career-ending. Of all the women that reached out to me, almost none are still today working in their chosen profession, and that is outrageous. I, too, was silent in the beginning. It happened to me at the end of my year as Miss America, when I was meeting with a very high-ranking TV executive in New York City. I thought he was helping me throughout the day, making a lot of phone calls. We went to dinner, and in the back seat of a car, he suddenly lunged on top of me and stuck his tongue down my throat. I didn't realize that to get into the business, silly me, he also intended to get into my pants. And just a week later, when I was in Los Angeles, 
meeting with a high-ranking publicist. It happened again, again in a car, and he took my neck in his hand, and he shoved my head so hard into his crotch I couldn't breathe. These are the events that suck the life out of all of your self-confidence. These are the events that until recently I didn't even call assault. And this is why we have so much work to do. After my years, Miss America, I continued to meet a lot of well-known people, including Donald Trump. When this picture was taken in 1988, nobody could have ever predicted where we'd be today. <laughs> Me, fighting to end sexual harassment in the workplace. He, President of the United States, in spite of it. And shortly thereafter, I got my first gig in television news in Richmond, Virginia. Check out that confident smile with the bright pink jacket. Not so much the hair. <laughs> I was working so hard to prove that blondes have a lot of brains. But ironically, one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings in Washington, D.C. And shortly thereafter, I too was sexually harassed in the workplace. I was covering a story in rural Virginia, and when we got back into the car, my cameraman started saying to me, wondering how much I had enjoyed when he touched my breasts when he put the microphone on me, and it went downhill from there. I was bracing myself against the passenger door. This was before cell phones. I was petrified. I actually envisioned myself rolling outside of that door as the car was going 50 miles per hour like I'd seen in the movies and wondering how much it would hurt. When the story about Harvey Weinstein came to light, one of the most well-known movie moguls in all of Hollywood, the allegations were horrific. But so many women came forward, and it made me realize what I had done meant something. He had such a lame excuse. He said he was a product of the 60s and 70s and that that was the culture then. Yeah. That was the culture then, and unfortunately, it still is. Why? Because of all the myths that are still associated with sexual harassment. Women should just take another job and find another career. Yeah, right. Tell that to the single mom working two jobs, trying to make ends meet, who's also being sexually harassed. Women, they bring it on themselves by the clothes that we wear and the makeup that we put on. Yeah, I guess those hoodies that Uber engineers wear in Silicon Valley are just so provocative. <laughs> Women make it up. Yeah, because it's so fun and rewarding to be demeaned and taken down, I would know. Women bring these claims because they want to be famous and rich. Our own president said that. I bet Taylor Swift, one of the most well-known and richest singers in the world didn't need more money or fame when she came forward with her groping case for one dollar. And I'm so glad she did. Breaking news. The untold story about women and sexual harassment in the workplace. Women just want a safe, welcoming, and harass-free environment. That's it. So how do we go about getting our power back? I have three solutions. Number one, we need to turn bystanders and enablers into allies. 98% of United States corporations right now have sexual harassment training policies. 70% have prevention programs. But still, overwhelmingly, bystanders and witnesses don't come forward. In 2016, the Harvard Business Review called it the bystander effect. And yet, remember 9-11? Millions of times we've heard, if you see something, say something. 
Imagine how impactful that would be if we carried that through to bystanders in the workplace regarding sexual harassment, to recognize and interrupt these incidences, to confront the perpetrators to their face, to help and protect the victims. This is my shout out to men. We need you in this fight. And to women too, enablers to allies. Number two, change the laws. How many of you out there know whether or not you have a forced arbitration clause in your employment contract? Not a lot of hands. And if you don't know, you should. And here's why. Time Magazine calls it right there on the screen, the teeny tiny little print in contracts that keeps sexual harassment claims unheard. Here's what it is. Forced arbitration takes away your Seventh Amendment right to an open jury process. It's secret. You don't get the same witnesses or depositions. In many cases, the company picks the arbitrator for you. There are no appeals, and only 20% of the time does the employee win. But again, it's secret, so nobody ever knows what happened to you. This is why I've been working so diligently on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. to change the laws, and here's what I tell the senators. Sexual harassment is apolitical. Before somebody harasses you, they don't ask you if you're a Republican or Democrat first. They just do it, and this is why we should all care. Number three, be fierce. It starts when we stand tall and we build that self-confidence and we stand up and we speak up and we tell the world what happened to us. I know it's scary, but let's do it for our kids. Let's stop this for the next generations. I know that I did it for my children. They were paramount in my decision-making about whether or not I would come forward. My beautiful children, my 12-year-old son, Christian, my 14-year-old daughter, Kaya, and boy, did I underestimate them. The first day of school last year happened to be the day my resolution was announced, and I was so anxious about what they would face. And my daughter came home from school, and she said, Mommy, so many people asked me what happened to you over the summer. And then she looked at me in the eyes, and she said, And Mommy, I was so proud to say that you were my mom. And two weeks later, when she finally found the courage, to stand up to two kids who'd been making her life miserable, she came home to me and she said, Mommy, I found the courage to do it because I saw you do it. You see, giving the gift of courage is contagious. And I hope that my journey has inspired you because right now it's the tipping point. We are watching history happen. More and more women are coming forward and saying enough is enough. Here's my one last plea to companies. Let's hire back all those women whose careers were lost because of some random jerk. Because here's what I know about women. We will no longer be underestimated, intimidated, or set back. We will not be silenced by the ways of the establishment or the relics of the past, no. We will stand up and speak up and have our voices heard. We will be the women we were meant to be and above all, we will always be fierce. Thank you.
So let's look at what the president said yesterday. President Trump attempting to walk back his statements from Helsinki, where he sided with the Russian state over the U.S. government and its intelligence services regarding Moscow's interference in the American political system. Take a look at what the president said standing next to Vladimir Putin and then his comments yesterday at the White House. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. because I think you have a right to know why I've taken the actions that I've taken. You have a right to the truth, as difficult as it may be to hear, because you can bear it. Over the last few weeks, I've reached out to and relied upon some of the best medical experts, epidemiologists, mathematicians, and modelers to help me understand what the progression of this disease will look like in Illinois. My bedrock has been to rely upon science, real, actual science around infection rates and potential mortalities. In my discussions with these experts, I've asked for honesty and hard truths. I ask that choices and consequences of those choices be laid out for me as clearly and starkly as possible. I've asked every one of these experts, what action can I take to save the most lives? Well, they've come back to me with one inescapable conclusion. To avoid the loss of potentially tens of thousands of lives, we must enact an immediate stay-at-home order for the state of Illinois. So that is the action that I'm announcing today. We have looked closely at the trajectory of this virus in countries like Italy and China. Left unchecked, cases in Illinois will rise rapidly. Hospital systems will be overwhelmed. Protective equipment will become scarce. 
and we will not have enough healthcare workers or hospital beds or ventilators for the overwhelming influx of sick patients. The only strategy available to us to limit the increase in cases and ensure our healthcare system has capacity to treat those who become ill is to mitigate the spread of coronavirus in the most robust manner possible. I don't come to this decision easily. I fully recognize that in some cases, I am choosing between saving people's lives and saving people's livelihoods. But ultimately, you can't have a livelihood if you don't have your life. Of all the obligations that weigh on me as governor, this is the greatest. If there are actions that I can take that will save lives in the midst of this pandemic, no matter how difficult, then I have an obligation to take these actions. Therefore, starting tomorrow evening, Saturday, March 21st at 5 p.m. until the end of April 7th, all our residents will be subject to a stay-at-home order. There is a great deal of misunderstanding about what a stay-at-home order means, so I want to clarify it for everybody. Here's what will stay the same. You'll still be able to leave your house to go to the grocery store to get food. You'll still be able to visit a pharmacy, go to a medical office or hospital, or to gas up your car at a gas station. You'll still be able to go running and hiking and walk your dog. Many, many people will still go to work. For the vast majority of you already taking precautions, your lives will not change very much. There is absolutely no need to rush out to a grocery store or gas station. On Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and every day thereafter, those will be available to you. Agriculture and the press, veterinarians and plumbers, laundromats and banks, roads, bridges and transit, the fundamental building blocks that keep our society safe and steady will not be closing down. You can still pick up dinner from your local restaurant, pick up your prescriptions and just spend time with your family. We are doing all that we can to maintain as much normalcy as possible while taking the steps that we must to protect you. That brings me to what will change. All non-essential businesses must stop operating. If you can work from home and aren't already doing so, now is the time when you must. The heroes of this moment are healthcare workers, first responders, law enforcement officers, and the individuals and organizations like the Illinois AFL-CIO and other workers who keep our grocery stores and pharmacies running cannot stay home. We need you. This executive order is fundamentally about the rest of us and what we can do to support the people on the front lines of this fight and the people most vulnerable to its consequences. We know this will be hard, and we're looking at every tool that we have to help you through this crisis. For our essential workers, we're going to make sure you have safe daycare to take care of your children while you do the critical work to save us and to keep us safe. For those who are asking to stay home, we're ordering municipalities, sorry, the, to those that we are asking to stay home, we're ordering municipalities across the state to halt all evictions. We need our local leaders to help ensure our families do not lose their homes. I'm also directing additional resources to organizations across the state to serve those experiencing homelessness. For our students, your school districts will continue to provide you with meals, and we will back them up in this. I wish I could stand up here and tell you when your schools will safely reopen, but that is not an answer that I have at this time. We're postponing our tentative reopening date statewide until April 8th, and we'll continue to update you with new information as we have it. To be honest, we don't have the resources, the capacity, or the desire to police every individual's behavior. Enforcement comes in many forms, and our first and best option is to rely on Illinoisans to be good members of their communities and good citizens. 
working together to keep each other safe. I've instructed law enforcement to monitor for violations and take action when necessary, but that is not an option that anyone prefers. The easy thing to say today is that soon everything will go back to the way it was. But I want to be honest with you about that too. We don't know yet all the steps we are going to have to take to get this virus under control. But here's what I do know. About 150 years ago, the city of Chicago burned to the ground. When the ashes cleared, we passed laws requiring buildings be built with fireproof material. We invented skyscrapers. Chicago went from a small Midwest town to one of the biggest cities in the United States. And just to make a point, we built the Chicago Fire Academy on the very spot where the great Chicago fire started burning. In the coming days and weeks, we're going to expand testing in Illinois to figure out how to detect COVID-19 more quickly and more efficiently. Our scientists and our doctors are working on treatments even now. They will screen people more effectively, isolate them more quickly, and attack this more efficiently. They're going to learn, and as they learn, they're going to innovate. They're already on a path to develop a vaccine. Our healthcare infrastructure will adapt because it must. This will not last forever. However, it's going to force us to change, but that's okay. Any event of this magnitude should force us to change. We here in Illinois have overcome obstacles before, and we'll do so again, and we will rise to this occasion. Thank you, and now I'd like to introduce the mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. Thank you, Governor. <clears throat> I have to um, say again, not only thank you for um, your partnership, but your leadership in this incredible time. I've heard from people all over the country um, that they feel that Illinois is in good hands because of your leadership. So thank you very much. Uh, as the governor just announced, um, he is issuing a stay-at-home order. And I hope you think of it that way. Uh, this is clearly not a decision that was made lightly. Um, nor by any one person. And I echo the governor's statement. These are not our only difficult choices to be made, um, but they are choices that must be made for the good of all of our residents. The governor, local leaders, and I are in full agreement that we need to act swiftly and then this decision is necessary. As the governor alluded to, we have seen what bold measures have yielded in places like Japan and Singapore and South Korea. And sadly, we are witnessing what is not happening around the world in countries that did not mobilize. The coronavirus will not go away by happenstance. We must be intentional about taking steps to flatten the curve. Today's announcement, along with other steps taken in the last two weeks, are intended to do just that. We can only save lives and blunt the spread of this virus by keeping as many people as practical at home and safe. And I want to talk specifically about what this will mean for Chicago. Our city, um, in the absence of leadership from the federal government, frankly, is doing the following. Finalizing, securing quarantine and isolation locations. Bolstering hospital capacity. Supporting our healthcare workers and first responders and doing everything possible to relieve the pressure on them. And building a supply chain to make sure that critical equipment to the healthcare system. Things like ventilators, PPEs, and other important supplies are available and given to areas of need. We will continue to identify residents who are sick and ensure they receive the treatment and resources they so rightfully deserve and put them on a path to recovery as has happened already with many. Our healthcare workers have been at the forefront of this pandemic. They are working around the clock and putting their own health on the line to keep those who need it most. That means we as a city must do everything we can to help them. Now is not the time for half measures, but preventative and proactive plans, ones rooted in science and data, and to mitigate the spread and ultimately to save lives. And let's be clear, this has to be a two-way street. While the responsibility of our government is to build a plan, 
Your personal responsibility is to take all necessary precautions to keep yourself safe and formally include uh, in order to stay at home. I know there are, we are asking a lot of residents and to make enormous sacrifices. I also understand um, that these times can be uh, causing anxiety. And again, think of this as safer at home. But here's the reality. We've issued common sense public health guidance. This is out announcement today as the next step in that progression. So many Chicagoans have already heeded our calls to stay home and are practicing social distancing. <clears throat> For those residents, today's announcement won't drastically change the day-to-day -day changes you've already taken. But while many have listened, some have not. And it's clear that the time is now for us to be very definitive in telling people that you must stay home. <clears throat> the governor already explained um, what this order is and what it requires from each of us. And I want to say and be clear, this is not a lockdown or martial law. As the governor said, and I want to reiterate, Chicago's grocery stores, pharmacies, and clinics will remain open. And there's absolutely no need to change your normal purchasing patterns. What I mean is, do not take this direction as a reason to run to the stores, buy everything in sight, and hoard vital supplies. Please, the grocery stores will remain open and stocked. So be mindful of your neighbors and do not hoard supplies. Hospitals will continue to treat patients. The city's essential services will not cease. The CTA will run. Airports will be open and your garbage will be collected. And yes, you can still go outside for a walk, and but practice social distancing. Remember, this is the new normal for now. I think and I hope people recognize and understand that these decisions are being made for the long-term health of everybody everywhere in our entire state. Let me remind you that uh, some helpful resources that you can access to stay informed during this crisis. For Chicago, the best and most up-to-date information is the public health website, chicago.gov forward slash coronavirus. And if you'd like to get text alerts, text COVID-19, that's C-O-V-I-D-19, to 78015. That's COVID-19 to 78015. And every day at 11 a.m., Monday through Sunday, Dr. Already's daily conversation session is being held. The doctor is in, and it is carried on Facebook Live. I also want to announce that in light of this order, we will be closing fully Chicago parks and libraries for the duration of this order. Some of these facilities may be repurposed to help support some other essential services by third parties, but effective tomorrow at 5 p.m., all city parks and libraries will be closed. This is a make or break moment for our city and our state. Never in our lifetime has our own health been so intertwined with the health of every single person with whom we interact. Neighbors, coworkers, loved ones, frontline workers, please realize your responsibility to them and continue to take care of yourself. Now, as I said recently, while this is a period of physical isolation, we should remain in contact with our families friends, and neighbors. Please call and check in with seniors, people who are vulnerable. We have disrupted normal social networks and interactions, but it is critically important that we not lose our sense of community. This is not a time for every man for himself. This is a time for every man, woman, and child to be united together. The choices we make today can renew and restore health and prosperity in Chicago and throughout Illinois. It is time to do more to flatten the curve and build our pathway to the other side. I have faith in Chicago's resolve and resiliency to help us get there. Thank you very much. Governor. Thank you, Mayor, very much for your remarks. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I. I uh, have over time been relying upon experts both here in Illinois and across the nation. Uh, the research that they've done, the work that they've done has guided me 
in many of the decisions that I have made. I thought it would be important to have one of those experts here today. Um, it's outside of our Department of Public Health uh, who has some very important guidance um, and background on why this order is so important. And so I've asked the lead epidemiologist at University of Chicago Medicine to join us here today, Dr. Emily Landon. Good afternoon, everyone. First of all, I want to send my sincere gratitude and support to all of the healthcare workers in Illinois and around the world. Despite doing our best to prepare for a respiratory virus pandemic, we now find ourselves facing a brand new virus with too little information, not enough personal protective equipment, changing protocols every single day, and no second chances. The University of Chicago Medicine and every other hospital in the state has been and is working very closely with our public health departments. Without these partnerships with each other and with public health and the CDC, we could not have made it this far and we will not get much further. And so I also express my gratitude to everyone working in public health. All of us in the field of infectious diseases and the public health community are united in our efforts and agree with this course of action. I've spoken with many of my, my colleagues across the city and the state, and we all acknowledge that this is the only way forward. This virus is unforgiving. It spreads before you even know you've caught it, and it tricks you into believing that it's nothing more than a little influenza. For many of us, it may not be much more than the flu. And so it could be very confusing as to why schools are closed, restaurants are shuttered, and now the virus is taking what's left of our precious liberty. But the real problem is not the 80% who will get over this in a week. It's the 20% of patients, the older, those that are immunocompromised, those that have other medical problems, who are going to need a bit more support, some oxygen, or maybe a ventilator, life support. We do amazing things like this to save patients in our American hospitals and across the world every single day, but we can't take care of everyone at once. And we can't keep that low mortality promise if we can't provide the support that our patients need. Our healthcare system doesn't have any slack. There are no empty wards for waiting for patients or nurses waiting in the wings. We barely even have enough masks for the nurses that we have. Looking back to the last time we were limited tools and having a dangerous infection spread quickly was the beginning of the 1918 pandemic. Two cities in America made different choices about how to proceed and when only a few patients were affected. St. Louis shut itself down and sheltered in place. But Philadelphia went ahead with a huge parade to celebrate those going off to war. A week later, Philadelphia hospitals were overrun and thousands were dead, many more than in St. Louis. This is a cautionary tale for our time. Things are already tough in Illinois hospitals, including mine. There's no vaccine or readily available antiviral to help stem the tide. All we have to slow the spread is distance, social distance. And if we let every single patient with this infection infect three more people and then each of them infect two or three more people, there won't be a hospital bed when my mother can't breathe very well or when yours is coughing too much. So in my house, we've made a lot of sacrifices. We don't go out anymore. This is the first time I've left my house in some days because I'm leading our efforts and emergency planning from my home. My son has traded in sports, a science conference, and the fifth grade bake sale for puzzles, e-learning, and some video chats. This isn't the life any of us expected, and certainly there are others who will make much greater sacrifices. And there are many more disappointments to come. But this isn't going to be forever, like the governor said. It will last longer than any of us want it to. But in the end, we will look back and see it as just a piece of what happened in our whole lives. And we have to remember that. How can soccer or book club be so dangerous? 
Why ask so much of people for just a few hundred cases? Because it's the only way to save those lives. And now is the time. Because the numbers you see today in the news are the people that got sick a week ago. And there are still people today who got sick today who haven't even noticed that they've been sick yet. They picked up the virus and it will take a week to see that show in our numbers. Waiting for hospitals to be overwhelmed will leave the following week's patients with nowhere to go. In short, without taking drastic measures, the healthy and optimistic among us will doom the vulnerable. We have to fight this fire before it grows too high. These extreme restrictions may seem, in the end, a little anticlimactic because it's really hard to feel like you're saving the world when you're watching Netflix from your couch. But if we do this right, nothing happens. Yeah, a successful shelter in place means that you're going to feel like it was all for nothing. And you'd be right, because nothing means that nothing happened to your family. And that's what we're going for here. Even starting now, we can't stop the cases from coming fast and furious, at least for the next couple of weeks and in the short term. But with a real commitment to sheltering in place and a whole lot of patience, we can help protect our critical workers who need to use public transportation in order to safely get from where they need, where they need to go. We can give our factories time to ramp up production of all that PPE so that we have enough masks to last. And we can make more medications and learn more about how we can use them to help save more lives. Even a little time makes a huge difference. It will take more than a week to start seeing the rate of increase slow down. And that's a complicated thing to say. It'll take even longer to see the rate come down and see it slowing and infections going down. So please don't give up. I've lived in Illinois my entire life. And I know we'll get through this together and find a way back to the life that we used to live. Public health and hospitals have been working hard for a long time and now it's your turn to do your part. A huge sacrifice to make, but a sacrifice that can make thousands of differences, maybe even a difference in your family too. I'd like to ask Dr. Ezeke to join us now. Good afternoon and thank you, Dr. Landon, for that impassioned plea. Thank you. I think your message will ring loud across everyone's ears who heard that. As the governor mentioned, I am saddened to announce another individual in Illinois with the coronavirus who has passed away. And that individual was a resident of Cook County who was in her 70s. We now have 585 cases of COVID-19 in 25 counties across Illinois. As the number of COVID-19 cases being reported continues to rise, Every single day, the state of Illinois is working to increase testing capacity by working with Illinois hospitals to implement testing within their facilities. We want to strengthen the testing capacity in Illinois by helping hospitals and laboratories to develop their own testing ability. And we expect to have these tests available within the healthcare system in the next few weeks. Additionally, the state is working with the Department of Health and Human Services to set up drive-through testing sites in some of the hardest hit areas of the state. One of these community-based testing sites will be operated by the state of Illinois with support from the U.S. Health and Human Services. Three additional sites are a federal state private partnership, the state of Illinois with the Health and Human Services and both Walgreens and Walmart. We wanna thank both of these businesses for their support during this difficult and unprecedented time. These facilities will focus on senior citizens, first responders, and healthcare workers. We are finalizing these plans now and look forward to announcing more in the coming days. Hospital capacity is another area we are focusing on, identifying resources and ways to increase our bed capacity in Illinois to treat those who contract the novel coronavirus. 
The state has been working with other jurisdictions and businesses to reopen recently opened hospitals. We are currently doing assessments at different hospitals in Illinois to determine the current condition of the facility, the medical resources available, staffing levels, and what else might be needed to open these facilities in order to provide medical care for individuals with COVID-19. Additionally, we have worked with our federal partners to develop guidance for hospitals to adopt telehealth protocols so that individuals with mild respiratory symptoms can talk to a healthcare provider before seeking medical care and possibly infecting others in the process. We ask again that everyone do their part so that we can reserve both testing capacity and medical care availability, including ICU capability, for those who need it the most. If you are a healthy individual with only mild symptoms, please stay home and allow those who are at highest risk of severe illness to receive the testing and the medical care that they need. We thank you for your cooperation. At no previous time have we seen how interconnected we all are and how everyone's decision or indecision can affect others. Thank you. And now I will summarize the comments uh, for our Spanish-speaking audience. The George Wilder Jr. Show is now on the air. You are
lay me down before I go to sleep. In a troubled world, I pray the Lord to keep, keep hatred from the mighty and the mighty from the small. 